Hi there and welcome to the Book Realities Podcast, a series of interviews with independently minded authors where we explore their books, their writing techniques, and what made them become a writer in the first place. I'm your host, Ian Hooper, and as well as being an independent author, I also run the Book Reality Experience. Hi everybody and welcome to another of our Book Reality series, our interviews with independent authors. And today we're joined by Barbara Ann Quinlan, author of the Love Seeker series. Hi Barbara, good to see you. How are you? Great to see you. Excellent. And you're joining us from where today? Whereabouts are you in the world? Uh, would you believe Lakewood, New Jersey? Excellent. So let's talk about Love Seeker. In a nutshell, what's Love Seeker? What's it about? And why did you decide to write it? Um, Love Seeker is about the search for love, uh, but not romantic love, for the real love, for the true love, for the love that is the essence of our existence, for the love that never dies. Uh, and uh the the main the first theme of the book is that that love has an incredible power to link us to our beloveds to um guide us to its own awakening within us and the strength of that leads us through our life and it's your life story. It's your story from you growing up in Southern California in the 1950s, 60s. Oh, uh, no. I, I grew up in upstate New York uh, until I was almost 12. And then my father brought the whole family to California. But I wanted to say that the secondary theme of Love Seeker is that so long as you're breathing, you can reconstruct your life uh, physically, mentally. I want to say spiritually, you can reconstruct. You can reconstruct your life. Um, that possibility is always there, so long as one is breathing. And yeah, and it's in it's in three volumes. So as you say, you were born in upstate New York. You grew up in your teenage years in Southern California, but then you then you left to try and find yourself. Yeah. Um. I I left to go and study at the Teatro Laboratorium of Jerzy Grotowski in Wrocław, Poland. And I went to him because um, I actually used to say, if Jung was alive, I would go there. But because he's not and Grotowski is, I am going to Grotowski. So I suppose in some sense, you could say it was a journey to find oneself. And in the ultimate sense, I would find there the treasure of my life. No, you were... I suppose, to use a stereotype, you were the archetypal wild child of the 1960s by your own admission. Would you Would you agree with that? Um, I didn't really look at myself that way, uh, but I suppose it's it's a it's a fair analysis. I in my upstate New York upbringing, I was incredibly sheltered and raised by a very staunch Catholic. It wasn't until I was in my 30s that I would find out I was in fact Jewish. A uh, big shock to everybody in the family, <laughs> but um, even to my own mother, but my grandmother knew. So, uh, yes, I would did not want to come to California when I was 12. I regarded it as the Mecca of sin of the world. I wanted to stay with the nuns in New York and become a nun. 
And um, yeah, when you go out into the world and you've been overly sheltered, there's kind of an interesting backlash that happens where you, um, my thirst for life was uh, very strong. Not thirst for life. I mean, you really did incorporate the sex, drugs and rock and roll lifestyle. You eventually ended up in the arms of a very famous pop singer in Israel, yes? Yes, um, he is in fact, Zohar Gov is the most famous star in all of modern Israel, and he's been dead for 34 years. And um, he had a particular style of music though within Israeli pop, he yes? Was a, he was a Mizrahi singer um, or oriental. He was uh, came from Yemenites, and he was the first of the Oriental singers to uh, make it onto the radio. And after him, the herd followed. And since then, many have tried to copy his voice, but no one really could because because he was incredibly unique. He he sang from his soul. He he ripped. I mean, I had a man, a nightclub owner, tell me that he would trade his parents, his wife, and his children for Czar to be alive. Seriously. And you also rubbed shoulders with um, the likes of Rod Steiger and Elizabeth Taylor in Hollywood? Yeah, Rod Steiger, uh, I didn't even realize when I met him that he was one of the greatest actors of our time, of, of that time, or ever. Um, as I got to know him and then would later actually see most of his films, 95% of every character he presented was not Rod Steiger. 95%. He, um, he was a master at creating characters. And he was wonderfully fun to be with. He was so passionate. And so we would like laugh all the way to, you know, some superb restaurant in Malibu and sing all the way home. But it would be fair to say that you were also on a bit of a self-destructive trail during some of those years because of substance abuse. So that would be fair. Oh, yes. Oh, greatly. Oh, so much so. And it's funny because um, I had already found the key to my heart. I had already knew what I were, what I really was made of. I had tasted and danced and swam in the energy of uh, of what the Hindis call prana, the ocean of light and energy. It was mine and it was mine to go to any time I wanted. But there was a certain arrogance that came with that discovery. Um, I felt that I was invincible. And in the end, my journey through severe cocaine addiction and it wasn't that I was doing it every single day it's just that once you start doing it you're doing it for three four days at a time and there were several years that I was caught by that um maybe it was only twice a month but it doesn't it doesn't matter it's devastating to one's life it's completely devastating and now I'm glad that I went through that because preceding that time not only was I severely arrogant but the judge within me how, how could anyone become like that? You know, how would anybody become? I mean, the judge that kept cranking out these concepts of, you know, these people and how low they were. It's like, uh, 
the the experience getting through it living through it taught me compassion and because of that compassion i was able to write these books if if i did not have compassion first for myself i would not be able to write these books because i felt like it was if i was going to if i was going to write these books a voice in the back of my head said, will you tell this? Will you say this? Will you tell that? Will you say this? And it was like another voice came and said, if you don't, then you will have just written romantic fluff. It, it won't have any value to anyone. But if you are willing to stand up and say, I have been through this and this and this and this, and I stand here now whole, happy, and full of love and survived, you know, and, and had even until this moment, such a rich life. I wanted people to know. I didn't want to hide anything. I, I didn't want somebody to come back to me and say, well, you've never been through this or this has never happened to you. I, I, it would have been a betrayal not to, to, not to be absolutely truthful. And within that truth, what was the one pivotal moment that set your life on a new direction, on the direction that it, it's taking and still takes nowadays? What was that one moment? Well, I think that the thing uh, when Zohar died, that was uh, nearly destroyed me um, or I nearly destroyed myself because I felt if I had been there, maybe it wouldn't have happened. I had was in America at the time. Um, but then um, I went back to Israel to kind of clean his grave and a voice said, don't come back here. Don't come back. Okay, so I met my daughter's father and having the child changed everything. Now I, I, I could not let myself slide back into hell. Now I, I had this wonderful being that was in my charge for the time being. And I would have to say that rescued me. And from there, you then developed into, you became a, a practitioner of yoga. You became a health practitioner. You, you moved forward and in a completely different direction, didn't you? Well, my studies uh, in theater were, you know, extremely esoteric, you could say, at some point. We studied dynamic hatha yoga, tai chi chuan, katakali, Balinese dance. I mean, a whole stream of, of the ancient Chinese voice re resonator technique. And um, also qigong. So... By the time my daughter was born, I was a chi master. I was able to heal people. I still am. I don't do it as often now unless somebody really, really needs me. And how to use that. I mean, I never charged for a healing. So I figured, well, how am I going to use this? And I had been working in and out of the film industry. And there was no way that I could do that and raise my daughter. Because you go onto a set at 6 o'clock in the morning and you get off that set at 6 o'clock the next morning and maybe you don't work for a week and then three weeks and then you work for five. It was not possible. So someone suggested to me that the up-and-coming uh, career was going to be massage therapy. So I went back to school and I studied kinesiology and every, everything that needed to be studied uh, and um, became a certified massage therapist. And in that way, I could charge for the massage, but not for the healing. And I have people say, what are you doing? <laughs> I had one woman say, I'm a Christian, you know, because the energy would like pour that twice that happened to me in the beginning of my career. And 20 years later that somebody was like, so 
terrified of feeling their own energy, just the energy. It's not sexual, just the energy, you know? And it, um, yeah. So for me, it was profound experience. Um, I, uh, when I realized that I could heal people, I really did not want to. I just did not. I mean, I just, you know, they would thank you so profusely. You want to crawl under the rug because to me, I didn't own it. I didn't know how to own it. I just knew that I could do it. And other people knew too. So they would come after me. It was, it was very beautiful. I am, I am very, very grateful that I had the chance to give back. And I feel like it paid back a lot of karma, which I'll deal with in the next book. Very good. Now, speaking of books there, when you said about the next book, I mean, we've got the three, the trilogy, out, which are screaming to be a Netflix series after all. Oh, yes. And, and they really should be a Netflix <laughs> series. Uh, but when did you decide to start writing or have you always written notes or journals or how did it how did it actually manifest? Um, I've always known that I would write a book about my life since I'm five years old. I was walking around the block in Buffalo, New York, and uh, right before we moved to Penfield, and uh, it struck me. And it's so fun because here I am five years old. I have no idea what kind of life I'm going to live, but I knew that I would write about my life. Okay, that's fun. And then um, I wrote my first poem when I was probably five, a little bit later that year for the nuns. And um, I got up in the morning and I had to write really quick and it came out very well. And then I wrote a lot of poetry and uh, mostly, uh, and then journals. Since I was 14, I started keeping journals. Thank God, because I needed them later. And then um, I wrote some screenplays. I was commissioned to write a few screenplays. I wrote one about Zara. It never got taken. And, uh, and then one day I was standing in my kitchen and I had a vision, which is where the book begins. And the vision was of uh, running into my lover from Paris, uh, many years later, as I'm walking up the street of Théophile Gautier. It was just, the image was so clear and it struck me how many things have happened since then. And I started to see my life as an event, a chain that was, you know, that was set on, on, a, on a rail. And that rail was that love that I had searched for since I was a child. And that energy, the, the essence of the ocean of light and energy is, is a profound, profound love, almost more than one can bear. So I thought, okay, you know, and then when my daughter left for New York to get her master's in psychology and Tim and I were still living in Malibu, the minute she walked out the door, I started writing it. When I was raising her, I told myself um, I could not, I, I, I did not write when I was raising her because my experience as a writer was I would write for 48 hours straight. I would write until, until, you know, I was crippled and I would all kinds of crazy things. I would, you know, get start writing paragraphs where every single word was the same. So I mean, it was like, yeah. So I did not, believe that I could write and raise her at the same time. It was certainly, I, I may very well have been wrong, but not until she walked out the door did I actually start the book. Very good. And having finished the book, what was the best feedback that you've received for the trilogy so far? Well, I found you to begin with. 
Oh, well, that's and, very kind uh, of you. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, well, I mean it. I mean it. I, I really respect you as a publisher, as an editor. You are beyond belief. You um, you held me to the truth. You examined, uh, you wanted proof of the things that I was saying, because I think a lot of it was just like, this cannot be, right? And I was even, we were even able to drum up the video of me uh, sitting with Rod Steiger and Elizabeth and Warner and, you know, um, and the, the Nazi hunter uh, winding up sitting in his lap. That was so great. Uh, yeah. Well, that was the Simon Wiesenthal Memorial Wiesenthal, dinner, wasn't it? Yeah, the Simon award Wiesenthal. dinner, rather. Yeah. yeah, huge, enormous, what a night that was. I'm sitting on the dais with Rod. No one knows who I am. I'm the only person on the dais. Sandy Davis Jr. and his wife are sitting next to me. I'm the only person on the dais. Nobody knows. And after dessert and a few drinks, I wound up sitting in Simon's lap. I adore him. I really, he was a great hero to me. So, uh, yeah, I was able to prove anything that you questioned because it was all true. And of course, the thing from the publisher's point of view, not that I didn't believe you, but if we were going to say that this happened um, on a certain date and we went back and then discovered that that actual date was a year and a half before, we had to make sure that the time absolutely, properly, et cetera. So. Absolutely. And believe me, it wasn't easy to nail some of it down. Not yeah. really. But now, we did. When we're talking about that, how did you actually, now I know the answer to this, obviously, but for anybody watching, how did you find us in the first place? My beloved sister was already being published by you, Kathleen Quinlan, and uh, the inner champion. And she said, well, why don't you send it to Ian? And I went, okay. And then you actually liked it or liked it enough to say you would publish it. And I was uh, very excited. And I, I love, like, I love what you did. I, you, uh, I had just broken it down into a trilogy before I sent it to you. Before that, it was this behemoth that, you know, I don't know, like this. Um, and when I broke it down into the trilogy and you helped me just so much. I mean, the books are so cute. They fit in your pocket practically. Anybody can shove it in their purse or their little satchel. The covers are gorgeous. Um, we went through a lot for that, but they're gorgeous. And I just... I love your work. You you are you are really quite something. You deserve all the success you're having, and I hope that you'll have more. Oh well, I'm I'm humbled, but thank you very much. But we're going to switch this focus back to yourself now. So, um, the feedback that you've received from others with regards to the book, what's been the best feedback that you've received? I think it was uh, my girlfriend Converse, who read it in a weekend. I mean, I'm surprised that people not including Con Converse read it in the weekend and she just could not stop complimenting my work and, and also said um, something like, uh, it's amazing that you survived. She said, no one else could have survived. That's what she said. And I have had friends and not friends who actually don't really like me as a person write wonderful things about the book and how much they loved it i mean it was it was a big shock to hear from people that i know just really never terribly took to me love the book which is quite interesting and they think the writing is wonderful um but not everybody thinks that of course not everyone no, well, we can't. Uh, i mean as your fellow countryman once said you can't please all of the people all of the time saying that <laughs> 
you've got a microcosm of life in various places that people may or I mean they may have read about before but they've never experienced and you experienced them so the being an au pair in Paris the drama student or one of the one of the most respected but um off the wall drama schools that ever existed um the ability to mix and rub shoulders with Hollywood elite and still keep a life whilst being a highly functioning addict and then get <laughs> through all of that. I mean, there there are microcosms in your book that people look at and they would think, my God, how did you survive? And thankfully you did. I did. I really did. And uh yeah. I really did. I'm just wondering if it was the the uh, Catholic admonition against suicide, but I never actually considered suicide. I contemplated it when I was way before I had a drug problem. Now, you mentioned as well that you're working on a fourth. So what's next for Barbara and Quinlan? Um, well, it's not going to be book four of Love Seeker. Um, what I'm going to write about is block time, the physicist's theory of block time which is that here we have an aquarium we have an aquarium okay and in that this is the beginning of time and the end of time though it's hard to imagine the end of time and within this aquarium many fish are swimming so i never well as i said in the beginning when i was five years old i knew i was going to write about my life how did i know that The idea of block time is that the past, the present, and the future are all happening at once, are equal. And I think that this is one of the reasons it's so difficult for some people to overcome whatever happened in their childhood, because part of them is still there, living their house, obeying their rules. Um, So this is just like one part of it. Um, An example would be, okay, 1992, we have moved to Encino. It's a mile from where the epicenter of the earthquake is going to be huge. And the entire experience of that was just <clears throat> preceding that. My, I was looking for a new home for my daughter and I, and there was this one apartment that she refused to go into. She wouldn't go into the building, you know, let alone the elevator. Well, when the earthquake hit, we were, nothing had happened in our home. It was amazing. My walls went, uh, everything that was hanging on the walls was running parallel with the earthquake. So I didn't lose anything. I had no glass on the floor. I had to throw a saucer into the sink to get something broken, just, you know, for luck. And a friend of mine had, you know, this inch, inches of glass on his floor. So we had it on over there. And we drive by that building that my daughter wouldn't walk into. And it's on the ground. Now, is she psychic? Or had she been on that ride before? So for me... You know, I traveled a lot as a young person, as you know, and then in these later years, I traveled a lot. And as we went into Moscow and Ukraine and all the way through South America, and you meet people, you meet people, and when you meet them and you hold out your hand, there's like a shock that I know you. No. You know, from the way that I was raised, I never thought about, oh, past lives or anything. And even now, I don't don't believe in it because I don't know it. But I use that to help to explain what I cannot explain, which is this tremendous 
powerful connection that you can feel to total strangers. And then not only do I feel that, but there comes like a vivid dream as I get to know them, as I spend time with them, I start to see something. And that's what I'll write about. It sounds absolutely fascinating. And I shall look forward to the manuscript when you've come up with it. Now, I can't wait to give it to you. <laughs> Barbara, thanks ever so much for taking some time out um, of your evening to talk to us. Now, we normally try and end this with a, our take on the Actors Studio questionnaire. So these are quick fire questions. First thing into your head. Are you ready for this? I am. Excellent. So Barbara Ann Quinlan, author of the Love Seeker trilogy. What is your favorite book? The Idiot by Dostoevsky. And if you have one, what is your least favorite book? I don't have one because I have never continued to read a book I was not enjoying. Excellent. I just read it. Emotionally or creativity-wise, what turns you on? Uh, music. Um, can be jazz, can be classical. Uh, I'd say music is right up there at the top. And anything else that turns me on is not for public consumption. <laughs> what turns you off? Fascism. Summer or winter? Autumn. <laughs> nice answer. On a yeah, and I want to say that it, it you know, you, uh, my favorite poet said, um, "Autumn already." But why regret an eternal sun if we are committed to the discovery of divine light? far beyond those who die with the seasons. Bramble. Very good. On a completely free day to do anything you want, who do you spend it with? Well, I rarely get to spend time with my daughter who lives up in the vineyard. Uh, so I would have to say myself, sorry to say, myself. Oh, no. That's a perfectly valid answer. I have answer. very little time like that. I have very little time that I can uh, spend just with myself. Yeah, there's and I'm surprised how many authors say the same thing that a, a little time. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? <laughs> oh uh, my god. Mountains or oceans? Hmm. God, it, for me that's really hard to say because I love the forest and I, I love the ocean. So I, I I have to tell you, having lived so long in Southern California, I was like twenty minutes from either and I love both. I, I could not say. Okay. So you mentioned music earlier on there. If you've got one song to listen to for the rest of your life, what would that be? Ode to Joy, Beethoven's Ninth. Perfect. Who makes you laugh the most? Oh, goodness. Um, oh, my daughter. <laughs> this is hysterical. <laughs> yeah. And what smell do you love? Uh, jasmine and rose. And conversely, what smell do you hate? Coconut. As in when you have a lotion infused with coconut or a massage lotion infused with coconut. It's dreadful. I cannot stand it. Although I do like a coconut lemon cake, but that's a totally different story. <laughs> and other than the professions that you have done, what profession would you like to attempt? I've been singing all my life, and it's a very uh, strong possibility that I'll be singing in some jazz clubs, just like stepping up. You know, I, I don't really want it as a profession or to be paid. 
uh, I just love to sing. It's very, uh, it's a beautiful experience, especially as a once actor. It's a beautiful experience. And I sing a cappella. I'm a terrible, uh, um, I don't do team anything, including band. I just, I just don't. Uh, and the other thing would be, I realized I could have been a linguist because I'm very, very good at language. Very good. How many do you speak just as a as an aside? I speak five languages, sort of. Um, and I just have the ability when I go into my desire to communicate is so strong. Like even in Russia, I spent half the time trying to figure out how to say spasiba which is thank you and trying, just trying to understand, you know? And as you probably know, there are some countries in which it is appreciated if you try to speak their language. And there are other countries where if you try and you're not speaking it well, you better not speak, just don't even bother. So uh, yeah, but whatever. Excellent. And what profession would you definitely not like to do? Well, I'm sorry to say this, but the number one thing that comes directly to my mind is either garbage collector or grave digger. Mm. And speaking of grave digging, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Good job. Good. Well work. done. Excellent. Um, Barbara Ann Quinlan, thanks ever so much for your time, Barbara. I really, really think your books, and I've always said it, they are a Netflix series waiting to happen. What we need to do is find someone in the Netflix world to go, my goodness me, look at look at this story we have to tell. Um, but until Absolutely. then, I hope people go out and buy the books and, and read your wonderful journey. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ian, for everything. I think that you are wonderful. Oh, thanks very much. Hey, thanks for listening to this latest episode of Book Realities, our interviews with author series. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and turn your notifications on so that you never miss any content updates from us. If you liked this episode, leave us a rating or a review as it really helps the podcast's visibility, as does passing the pod on to any writers or author friends that you may have who you know will be interested in it. And join our exclusive mailing list at www.bookreality.com. The next episode will be released this time next week, but until then, stay safe and well. All the best.